let's uh, let's turn to the Word. We're going to be in Second uh, Peter, and we're in chapter two. And chapter two of Second Peter talks about false teachers, which apparently is what Peter was facing. And uh, we've talked about the fact that Second Peter is kind of like Peter's last testament. It's what he wanted to get across to everybody because he knew that uh, he was potentially facing the last days of his life. Um, there's no indicator here that he was under arrest at this point, but because of uh, what he says regarding how long he thinks he's going to be around, then there's every possibility that uh, this is something that came as the result of uh, his imprisonment. And as we've said, ultimately, um, church tradition holds that Peter was executed under the emperor Nero and uh, that he was crucified upside down. And that was, uh, according to church tradition in any event, that was because he said he wasn't worthy to die the way his Lord had died. And, uh, you know, perhaps being cynical and hateful, the Roman soldiers that crucified him turned the cross upside down. I don't know how long that would take to kill you, but it sure, surely would not have been pleasant for the apostle. But we're looking forward to uh, greater glory than anything that happens here on earth. So I'm going to go ahead and read through this a little bit. And uh, Elijah, I have the entirety of Second Peter in there. So if you want to follow along with me, um, then you can. And then I'm going to stop uh, at verses 5 through 9. We talked about those last week, but I, there were some things there that I didn't read that I, I want to go ahead and look at, and then we'll move on to this week. But let's take a look at this, 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Other translations will say maligned. Um, spoken against. That's literally the word. Blaspheme is a good word. It means to be spoken against. Verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we may assume that people are getting away with stuff when they're sowing these seeds of destruction in churches and out there in the world about the Lord, but the Lord says, no, judgment day is coming. Verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, is the, tra the translation here in the English Standard Version. The actual Greek word is Tartarus, um, which would refer to kind of the, the lowest regions of hell, if you will. It corresponds to what Jesus said when he called hell Gehenna, the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which is actually a valley outside of Jerusalem that Jesus used as a way to illustrate uh, this place of destruction. Uh, Gehenna was a garbage dump outside Jerusalem. It had once been uh, a place where child sacrifice was done. And God promised through Isaiah that eventually it would become this horror, and it did become that. So uh, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom was this place where they burned garbage and where the parts of the sacrifices that were not needed or used in any way were taken out and burned and of it and jesus quotes this at one point in mark 
of the valley of the sons of Hinnom, it was said, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And that was because you had this rotting garbage out there that was infested with maggots and they were trying to burn it, so it was always smoldering. There was just always this smoke that was going up. If you've ever been around a dump, it doesn't smell pleasant. So I've gone to the, it's called the transfer station up here in Garland, and uh, I've loaded stuff up in the back of my truck. And I mean to tell you, just pulling in there. Now, they, they take all that stuff, so the transfer station, because they take it, and then they take it away to the dump. But there's so much garbage down there that literally just going in there makes your clothes smell like garbage. It's horrible. Like my car, the interior of my, of my truck will smell like garbage when I leave. So this is a horrible place. And Jesus is trying to get that in people's minds that, you know, this is a place uh, where those who are separated from God are consigned. This is a place of separation from God. This is a place of destruction. This is not a place where one, you know, you hear people in the world and say, you know, well, I'm going to go to hell. All my friends are going to be there. We're going to have a party and the devil's going to be down there. The devil's more afraid of hell than you or I ever thought about being, right? So this is the picture that Jesus put in their minds. And this word Tartarus was actually, it came from uh, the Greek idea of hell. And it just meant this, this lower, lower region of hell. It's not trying to be like Dante's Inferno and give you levels of hell and try to lay this out. But I wanted you to understand what the word that, um, that is used there is. It says these angels, when they sinned, were, he, uh, God cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, and remember Lot was Abraham's nephew who was living in Sodom, and the reason the angels visited Sodom before they destroyed it was to get Lot out of there right? Um, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, parenthetically it says, verse 8, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Verse 9, but the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, or the word there can also mean temptations, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, Creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which, uh, of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. That means that they're never satisfied. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. 
a speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. We'll discuss that if we get that far today. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. All right? So let's skip back up here to verses 4 through 9. I mentioned last week, uh, looking at the conclusion of that little pericope, that little passage, it says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation or trial and to keep the righteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So we have the hope that the Lord is going to protect us. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to keep you from trial. That's not what it says. But it says he will rescue you out of trial. It doesn't mean that he's not going to permit you to be tempted, although Jesus did say to pray, do not lead us into temptation, right? So that's something that I should actively be seeking to avoid on a daily basis. But I need to trust that the Lord is going to protect me from that. Today, do you know how people escape from temptation today? They just give in. They just say it's not really sin. But that's not the way to escape from temptation. Basically, you've essentially failed the test at that point. You and I need to fight against temptation. And we're going to encounter trials on a daily basis. Um, the Apostle Paul, after having gone through a significant amount of trial, including beating by uh, the Gentiles and uh, being rejected by his own people, uh, told a group, through many trials we enter the kingdom of God. You would get the impression from some false prophets and false teachers that you would hear on television, on the radio, and so forth, that we're just going to uh, just skip into heaven on beds of ease. You know, that nothing bad is going to happen to any of us. But you know, uh, those of us in this room have lived a few years, and we know that bad things happen even to good people. The question is not whether that's going to happen to you. The question is whether you will trust the Lord through that and really, really expect that he's going to deliver you out of it and he's going to help you and he's going to heal you and he's going to teach you as the result of it, right? Um, so I think, that, I think that that's a really good promise. Um, I already talked to you about Tartarus. Um, it says that their, their punishment is not held off until judgment day. Um, for some of the wicked, they begin to receive the consequences of their sin now. Right? We do things to our bodies, to our health. Uh, we do things to our lives. And we get the consequences of uh, those bad choices that we make. But further than that, I mentioned last week the story of uh, Lazarus and the rich man and uh, the fact that uh, Lazarus, 
who is named and the rich man who is not, so Lazarus is esteemed, uh, was laying outside the gate of a very, very wealthy man day in and day out. And the only thing he got were the, the scraps that the uh, rich man would have his servants throw to the dogs. And the man was in bad health. It says that he had runny sores. Let me just read the passage, okay? I think I related it to you last week, but the reason I stopped here again this week is because there were two passages I didn't read last week because of a lack of time. This is found in Luke 16, 16 through 31. I'm going to read the New International Version. There, were, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, that is, in Hades where the rich man was, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your, li remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm, that's a great gulf, a, a, a huge uh, opening, if you will, has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then, beg, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You have choice while you're here, but you do not have choice on the other side. Often we might assume that if we really saw these things, then, you know, we would change or, you know, People say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. But the reality is you can look at the people of Israel wandering through the wilderness as they were on their way to the way uh, to the land of Canaan, which they eventually rejected entering and their children uh, took the land of promise. But they saw miracles day in and day out. And they would be amazed on the day they saw the miracle and then they would just turn and complain again. See, you have the opportunity to exercise faith now because faith is triggered by God's word. That's a good way for me to say it, right? The Apostle Paul said it um, in, uh, in an inspired way like this. He said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Every time you hear God's word, every time you hear Jesus' word, there is an opening in your heart. There is a, 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 a movement in your heart, if you will, to either believe or disbelieve. So seeing a bunch of miracles, really, honestly, you might be amazed while you were seeing them, but it wouldn't change you, right? And going to the other side and seeing the reality of death and destruction and heaven and so forth, that's not going to change you either. God's word changes you if you choose to receive it. Believing is not seeing. I mean, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing, right? All right, let me say it again, because I, I, I said what I intended to say the wrong way to start with. All right, people say seeing is believing, but that's not true. Believing is seeing. Believing is genuinely seeing, right? 
uh, we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith, all right? So the examples we have of angels in the ancient world are still for us today. Um, there is a, a scripture in um, Revelation chapter 12 that gives us an understanding of what happened um, when uh, the dragon, that's the, the book of Revelation's way of describing Satan, this great red dragon, swept away a third of the angels of heaven and uh, they were in rebellion against God and they came to earth and there Satan is enraged because he knows that his time is short and so here he is to tempt and to test God's people and this is not just something that God is allowing, it is intended by God, it gives you the clear choice between right and wrong, good and evil, darkness and light, right? Um, but if you want to read about that, that's in Revelation chapter 12. Now, he gives the example of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah here. and he, um, I mentioned, I believe, last week and went into some detail that the issue in Sodom and Gomorrah is the issue today in our country. And it is people who are chasing after sensuality. So people are tempted with a variety of, of different things, right? Um, those that go to uh, AA and NA and those sorts of 12-step programs uh, will say what their quote-unquote drug of choice is, right? What they're saying is this, this is what trips me up. This is, this is my addiction. This is what I deal with right? Everybody has something that they deal with, and sometimes that is more socially acceptable. Plenty of people struggle with alcoholism. It's socially acceptable, right? Unless you get a DUI. Um, and then there are those who struggle with certain drugs, and if those drugs are illegal, then they're not socially acceptable in many circles. But the reality is the addiction is the addiction is the addiction. The addiction can be relationships, the addiction can be sexual in nature, but in the end, what's happening, this is not biblical, this is, you know, I guess scientific, if you will. Um, addiction is not really about the pleasure that I am encountering right in front of me, right? So, um, you know, someone who drinks alcohol likes the quote-unquote buzz or the relaxation or whatever. Someone who smokes, in spite of the fact that it is um, actually a, uh, a, a stimulant, uh, nicotine is a stimulant, there is a, a sense of calm, right? Um, pick any other addictive chemical or, or situation that you want. What's happening is a chemical is being released in your brain called dopamine. And that is what gives you that sense of reward. So there's a, a fellow named Charles Duhigg that wrote a book some years back. Um, and uh, it's about uh, addiction. And basically what he said is that addiction is very simple. It's just a habit that is created. And habits are very, very powerful. That's what he called the book, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. He said, there's a cue, right? We might call it a trigger, a cue. And that cue results in a routine, a set of behaviors. And that set of behaviors, that routine, results in a reward. Now, here's the tricky thing. 
you don't ever really get rid of a habit. You have to change the routine because you want that reward. So what you've got to find is a different way of attaining or obtaining the reward. Now, again, let's go back to alcohol again, that sense of you know, buzz or relaxation or whatever. So if I stop drinking, then I'm not going to get that sensation. But I am looking for something beyond that sensation. I'm looking for maybe uh, a way to overcome boredom or a way to overcome depression or a way. So there is a dopamine response in my brain. And what I need to do is create another routine that will give that same response. Now, let's go to the spiritual side of things. The scripture says those who come to God must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. So we've come up with a, you know, a chemical explanation, a physiological explanation of what's going on. But what we really need to do is we need to seek the Lord for the reward. And we need to seek him for something new to say yes to. So that's not always easy, and this is why uh, people find support in groups like AA and NA, and they realize within the first three steps that they can't control themselves and they have to turn themselves completely over to this higher power that we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he can give you the ability to overcome that and to seek a new reward other than a destructive reward that uh, you know, you may be currently seeking, or I may be currently seeking. Um, but what ends up happening is people become so involved and so identified, so enchanted on the positive side, so inured on the negative side, that they don't want to change. In fact, they become angry, they become hostile if they are confronted with the need to change, in spite of the fact that they may be self-destructive. So I mentioned, I've mentioned a couple of times, and, and forgive me for, you know, being whiny about this, but uh, one, of my, one of my old guitar heroes from before I was saved uh, died a couple of weeks ago, Eddie Van Halen. And uh, incredible, incredible musician, if you like that style of music, which that's the type of music that I loved when I was younger. Um, we used to call it album rock, if you will, right? And, you know, when you like that melodic style, I'm, I was just amazed that the guy, I listened to, uh, now that, you know, he's passed away, they've released all this stuff, right? So uh, Van Halen was actually discovered by Gene Simmons of Kiss. I don't know if you knew this, right? And so Kiss was horrible. I never, they were just terrible, right? Even before I was a Christian, they were demonic, right? There's just, I didn't like their music at all, right? But they were big in the mid-70s. I can remember I was a, like a freshman in high school and every kid had Kiss on their, you know, uh, their notebook or whatever. Um, and then we later found out that Kiss stands for Knights in Satan's Service. I don't know if that's true. Knights in Satan's Service. I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it is. But they did have the S's look like the Nazi SS, which is pretty terrible. Um, but in any event, uh, Gene Simmons apparently has the audition tape. And they, you know, they just went through and just ripped through a bunch of songs. And uh, honestly, David Lee Roth, their singer, who I was never a big fan of, did have a, you know, great voice for that style of band or whatever. 
But uh, he just sounded like a guy that was pretending to be a rock star. But even then, this young kid, Eddie Van Halen, sitting there with a guitar, could just create a melody on that guitar that was entrancing, enchanting. It was, I mean, that's not the right word for it. It just got people like me moving like, doggone, that's awesome. Well, apparently Eddie Van Halen's father was a musician. Didn't exactly play the same instrument. He played the ukulele, if you can imagine that. But he did ask his father because he got so nervous every time he got up on stage, you know, how do you deal with this? He said, well, you drink. So Eddie Van Halen drank and smoked a lot. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm not trying to gripe at you about drinking and smoking, believe it or not, all right? But he continued to smoke even after he got lung cancer and he recovered. And then he got throat cancer. That's what killed him. Now, he said, well, it's because of the metal guitar picks that I always kept in my mouth. And he had part of his tongue cut out and, and so forth. But here are these, these recent interviews of Eddie Van Halen, who is, you know, he's a, a cancer survivor as the result of his own smoking, and he won't stop smoking. Bless him. He was 65 years old, man. But this is what happens to us. We wrap ourselves around that. That was his identity. He, you know, blew smoke rings. If you ever saw the old, uh, the old uh, uh, video of Eddie Van Halen playing his, his solos, I mean, his main solo was this solo called Eruption that was on their first CD. But he always had a cigarette up and stuck in the strings up in the, uh, in the head of his guitar. That was, it was his identity, right? People wrap themselves around all kinds of things and they make that their identity in spite of the fact that that is destructive, right? Now, this word that is used earlier talking about uh, these teachers and how they were essentially teaching people to just give themselves over to sensuality is the Greek word aselgia, aselgia. And it can be translated sensuality, uh, lasciviousness, licentiousness. These are words we don't even use because we don't think of this as being a problem anymore, right? Lust sells. This is why people buy products. That's a sexy car, you know? And this is what's going on. But the reality is sensuality is a substitute for spirituality, for genuine spirituality. So I like uh, the 1984 version of the New International Version of the Bible. Uh, Philippians, excuse me, Philippians, Ephesians 4.19 says, uh, and having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So there are lots of different interrelated issues there. Sensuality, uh, epithumia is, is um, desire, and it could just mean eager desire. You could have an eager desire for something healthy. But most often in Scripture, the word is used to refer to unhealthy desires, desires that gain control over you, addictions essentially, right? Okay. Impurity, 
That just means you're divided. Your mind is divided. Your life is divided. Your heart is divided. You want to, this is what the Apostle Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. You want to do the right thing, but you always find yourself doing the wrong thing, right? And the only way to overcome that is to completely give yourself over to the Lord Jesus Christ and to recognize that these issues that you face are temptations that you're not going to be able to manage apart from him. And above all, you can't simply identify with them, give in to them, and allow them to, to rule and to run your life, right? Um, all right, so verses 10 and 11, it says, especially those who indulge, in, indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So this is probably the nature of the heresy that Peter is addressing. These false prophets and teachers were in rebellion against spiritual authority in order to advocate sensuality. And we see this in our time as well. Maybe a rebellion against spiritual authority or it may just be a rebellion against authority. All legitimate authority, as I pointed out in 1 Peter, comes from God. Legitimate authority is given to government, right? To the state. So that, you know, uh, the, the state, you know, the, 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 the policeman or the, uh, the one in power, the governor, doesn't bear the sword in vain. The state is to punish the wicked and reward those who are good. When that is reversed, that's when we need to do something about it, right? That's when protest is in order. That's when uh, more perhaps severe actions are in order. So they're there to reward those who are doing good and punish those who are doing evil, right? That's the intent. That's legitimate authority that comes from God. And that authority is given to those uh, regardless of whether they have uh, you know, a church membership or uh, a profession of faith or whatever, if they're simply willing to do what that authentic, that legitimate authority grants them the ability to do. So the overwhelming majority of police officers are good people, right? Just trying their best. Now they're people. They're going to make mistakes just like anybody else. But you have these these notorious instances that have caused those who are already in rebellion against authority, those who are already lawless, to consider that their lawlessness is acceptable, right? So there's nothing wrong with a protest. There's something wrong with burning down businesses. There's nothing wrong with a protest. There's something wrong with punching somebody in the face because they are supporting a political candidate that you don't like. <laughs> I saw a picture of a fellow the other day that was out there uh, advocating free speech, and apparently he was wearing a Trump hat, and he was pointing to his mouth, and his two front teeth had been knocked out by a member of Antifa. Unless you get the stereotype in your, in your mind that this must have been just some corn-fed white boy from somewhere. This was a black man. They don't care. It doesn't matter if it's the left or the right, right? There are people who simply want that sense of, of uh, entitlement. They want to be enabled in their lawlessness. These are lawless individuals. 
And so folks that are like that are going to gravitate, if they're church-oriented folks at least, they're going to gravitate toward teachers like these that Peter is referring to that are teaching people that it's okay to disobey the law, that it is acceptable to just follow your, your fleshly impulses and so forth. You know what? You're, you're not going to have to look far to find that today. You can probably find it on both sides of the, the so-called political spectrum because you find churches on both sides of that as well. But the reality is I can't put myself in a position where I'm going to step outside of the design that God has granted to us, right? And that's what I focused on on Sunday. The law is not arbitrary. It wasn't God saying, you know, here's Ten Commandments for you, and go out there and obey those. This is God's way of helping you understand the way he designed the world, okay? The, the universe operates in accordance with laws of physics, and, uh, you know, there are, there are many of those that are recognized, okay? Uh, the, the second law of thermodynamics, the so-called entropy law. All matter is proceeding toward chaos. All energy is proceeding toward death. Every closed system is subject to the second law of thermodynamics, the so-called law of gravity, you know? Uh, you know, drop something on the ground and you'll see the law of gravity and, and action. But it, it's basically just the attraction of two massive bodies. That's, that's it but it operates in accordance with certain uh, clearly definable qualities, mathematically definable qualities, right? You're no different. But what we have today, and you know, this is the case in the history of the human race, is every man does what's right in his own eyes and there's no king in Israel. So you have a person in authority in this country that many people don't respect. You have these notorious cases of police officers who've acted in ways that apparently um, are, are not professional and may be outright evil. And these are placed as the, the norm, right? And so therefore, that's not my president. So I guess if you know, the other guy gets elected, then that will be your president, and then that won't be these people's president. And then, you know, the roles will switch, and now we have a reason and an excuse not to obey the law, uh, you know, all over again. So now, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes because I didn't agree with that president. Uh, we can't live that way. We can't do that. But that's the way these teachers were, were operating, okay? Um, I, I like this, this, uh, this uh, designation, self-willed. That gets at the root of the human predicament, right? We might call that original sin, self-will. I'm operating in accordance with what I want. Who cares what anybody else wants, right? Who cares what anybody else thinks? Um, who cares whether there's a God or what God thinks? But we just, we can't live that way and that's not, uh, that's not scripture, right? Then in verse 12 it says, but these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures, that is these demonic creatures that have already been mentioned, be destroyed, suffering wrong as the, as the wages of doing wrong. So here we have the root of the problem, even as the warning of judgment is pronounced. These false prophets and teachers are not moved by supernatural inspiration, but driven by animal instinct. 
When someone says, ah, just, I, just, I just feel that. I just feel it in my gut. Or my gut instinct tells me. That's just the flesh, right? That's the, that's the nature of a human being apart from God. In fact, those who rely on their intuition or feelings, now that sounds higher. Uh, a man might likely say, I feel it in my gut or my gut instinct. A woman might likely say, I'm, it's just woman's intuition. I just feel it that way. But in the end, we can be wrong. My gut instinct can be wrong. Your intuition can be wrong. It can be misled. Um, the flesh, the world, and the devil all, are all in collusion against the Lord. So you don't trust your gut. Don't trust your emotions, your feelings, your passions, or impulses. These are all of the flesh and thus capable of manipulation by the devil. What did James say, the half-brother of Jesus, when talking about worldly wisdom? This is in the book of James, uh, chapter 3, verses 15. He said, worldly wisdom, which is motivated by self-seeking and envy, uh, this is the quote from James 3.15, such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Some will say, oh, I just trust my heart to lead me, right? I, I mentioned uh, on Sunday, this is uh, what uh, Justice Sotomayor said when she was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Obama. And this shows you the difference between her and uh, Coney Barrett, who is probably will be confirmed as early as Monday. Um, Sotomayor said, I, I, I will look into my heart when I make these decisions. And that sounds so noble to us. But what that means is that you're not interpreting the law. You're judging in accordance with feeling, your own feeling which is moved by other people. Coney Barrett is an originalist, like the man that she clerked for, Justice Antonin Scalia. What is an originalist? An originalist believes in authorial intent, right? And this is a, a theory of interpretation that means that the way you interpret something written is by going back and understanding how the author intended it to be interpreted. That as opposed to reader response, which says, I'm just going to allow this to hit me however it hits me, and then what it creates in me is my truth. And that's why you hear people today say, my truth and your truth and so forth. So an originalist is going to say, what did the framers of the Constitution mean by that? Not, what can we take it to say today? See, we've created entire direction, new directions in our country as the result of that sort of thinking. Now, whether you agree or disagree, that's Roe versus Wade. There's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. It was a particular way of interpreting it and it is not originalism, right? Uh, the Obergefell decision in 2015, this was the decision that codified same-sex marriage. Whether you agree or disagree is not my point here. My point is it's not in the Constitution. You're taking the Constitution and you're turning it into something that it is not because of how you feel. We can't live our lives like that. I know it's, it's very popular, you know, just about any movie that you would watch and a lot of books you would read would say, no, just look into your heart. 
But the scripture says that apart from Christ's transformation of the heart, the heart is desperately wicked. It's deceived. Who can know it? Right? Well, in the end, we're just human beings, and we're going to interpret things and feel things in accordance with our experiences and in accordance with what we want. More specifically, what I want. And this is why I shouldn't be able to predict what the Supreme Court is going to do on the basis of whether it is comprised of this many conservative justices and this many liberal justices. They should all be interpreting the Constitution, right? Now, I have uh, been quite interested to notice that the, uh, uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has made conservatives uptight on a number of occasions and has interpreted things in ways that they have considered to be not conservative. I like the guy because he's not trying to be liberal or conservative. He's just trying to interpret the law. But people aren't happy with that. They want you to interpret in accordance with their particular position on these issues, right? And uh, so anyway, these things are at the forefront of our country in these discussions, but I think that you can kind of bring that down to yourself. We don't need to be uh, unreasoning. And then this, I think this is the problem. Uh, reason is being used like, like a weapon rather than uh, being used as the tool that it is. Reason should allow us to sit down and have a discussion. We should be able to have a discussion about these sorts of issues without flying into a rage, okay? So I should be able to make statements that I've, that I've made here without alienating you and making you want to run out the back door and say, well, I just knew it. He's this or he's that or whatever. Why can't we just have a discussion? Why can't we just talk about these issues? Why does it always have to be about whether or not I'm offended or I'm enraged or I'm you know, whatever emotional term you want to use there. Why can't we just think about these things? See, if we could do that, then we would have government that was actually governing today instead of a bunch of people that really act a lot like kids on a playground. I, it's just the most ridiculous thing I have ever seen in my life. And this is on both sides. You may like this guy and not like this girl and this lady, whatever. What? It's, it's irrelevant. They're all acting the same. They're all acting like a bunch of kids. Right? That last presidential debate looked like three toddlers. That included Chris Wallace. I thought I was, I thought I was watching three toddlers. <laughs> but your campaign said... <laughs> I just, I'm like, I can't watch. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't watch, you know... Trump's interrupting Biden. Biden just standing there, just smirking the whole time. And they're just, what happened to decorum? What happened to courtesy? What happened to, and it's been out the window for quite a while. And it's not the fault of one side or the other. This is just the way things have been going on for quite a while. I can go back to the mid-90s. I saw this coming into uh, Washington when there was a huge conservative resurgence. And... Uh, you know, there, there were some things that uh, Bill Clinton obviously did that were unsavory. Um, but nonetheless, the Republicans did exactly what the Democrats have just done to Trump. They found something that they thought the country would despise and they impeached him. 
and the Senate was on his side, so he didn't leave office. Same thing just happened with Trump. But there's no concern over how this is going to actually affect the country. It's all about power and who can stay in power. That's kids on a playground. That's law of the jungle, right? That's, did you ever play King of the Hill when you're on the playground? You know, you pick whatever it was, you know, it'd be a bench or something like that. And you just, you know, knock the other guy off and, you know, see who can stand up there the longest. That's all these people are doing. And this is the danger and what we, what we see coming up. There needs to continue to be a balance because the folks that are wanting to get into office now want to swing everything. So this basically becomes a one party nation. And again, both sides have done this to the other side, right? They've eliminated certain features that would permit the other side when they're in a position of, um, when they're in a minority position to maintain a voice, okay? I won't get into all of that, but nonetheless, this is what we're, this is what this is like, like unreasoning animals, just uh, treating one another that way. Verses 13 through 19. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. So I'm not going to read all of those. Uh, this is uh, that whole discussion in 13 through 19 is talking about um, the relationship that these teachers have and uh, what, they're, uh, what they're really like, right? So um, revel in the daytime, carouse in the daytime. They're, they're not ashamed of what they do. You know, 10, 20 years ago, there were things that, were, that are being done today that people might be ashamed of. Not anymore. Right? They're, they're, they're proud of these things. Well, listen, when there is no honor, there is no shame either. Think about that. We're not an honor and shame-based culture in any event and really never have been. But when there is no honor, there is no shame, okay? Um, this term revel, it's the Greek word trufao, and it means to live a life of luxury usually associated with intemperate feasting and drinking, to revel, to carouse, to live a life of luxury, right? Um, uh, this uh, comes from a word in Greek that means to enfeeble, especially mind and body by indulgence. When you just continuously indulge, and it might be in something that's just not inherently unhealthy, um, I like cheesecake. Anybody else like cheesecake? Like, I really do like cheese. I can go to Cheesecake Factory and I can eat any cheesecake that they have. It's amazing. It's just, I love cheesecake. What would it do to my health if I ate cheesecake three times a day, every day? Probably not great, right? So you see, this doesn't have to be something that is inherently bad. This can just mean that I am unwilling to place any boundaries on my appetite. And it's, it's weakening to me. Um, interestingly, 
Strong says the authorized version, the so-called authorized version, King James Version, translates this softness. It can really mean to be more effeminate, luxurious living. So isn't this what Satan is doing to the citizens of the United States today? Making citizens soft through entertainment, gluttony, and gadgets. The devil hates the very idea of a man of God, a holy warrior who can oppose him in the name of Jesus. Is it any wonder that masculinity is under attack today? The feminine is promoted as moral, the masculine is toxic and immoral. Now, to be sure, there are godless men who use their strength selfishly, even cruelly. However, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Abuse, abuse excuse me, of a gift doesn't mean it is inherently evil, but that the abuser is, in fact, sinful and wicked. All right? Let's go down to um, verses 14 through 18. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Now, what is that about, Balaam, son of Beor? Well, this is a story in uh, the Old Testament where... Um, the king of, I want to say, Moab, uh, Balak, wanted to hire this well-regarded prophet named Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. Now, this was while Israel was on the east side of the Jordan River, and this was really before uh, God disciplined them and let them die in the wilderness so that their children went in and took the land of Canaan. So this is still under Moses, right? And they're all gathered down there on the east side of the Jordan River. And so um, Balak sends increasingly more prestigious groups of people to Balaam to try to get him to come over and curse these people because he's afraid of them. And so it's really kind of weird the way God responds because God initially tells him no and then he seems to say yes. But as we go on in the story, it appears that God is kind of responding to Balaam's attitude toward this and what he intends to do, right? But God eventually says, you can go, but I only want you to say what I tell you to say. So, you know, perhaps, and, and I think we see later, and I'll reveal this in just a second, that Balaam's motive was financial, right? Was greed. Um, but he went, as the Lord said, and on his way over there, an angel stands in the road with a sword. Well, Balaam can't see him, but the donkey can. And the donkey tries to go off the road and crushes Balaam's leg against the side of a, of a wall that's there beside the road. And so Balaam's just furious and gets off his donkey and starts beating his donkey. And then God gives the donkey a voice. I can just imagine. And what's crazy to me is Balaam's not even, you know, bothered by this. He, he's not scared about it. He, he doesn't think it's unusual. Okay. You know, the donkey says, why are you beating me? I'm your donkey. I've been with you my whole life. <laughs> he said, I would kill you if I had a sword in my hand. You know, and he's so upset. And so then God reveals the angel to, to Balaam. Balaam's like, oh, okay. So later in the story, what we find is 
Balaam only blesses Israel, blesses Israel, blesses Israel, blesses Israel, right? Much to Balak's chagrin and anger. But later, apparently, Balaam tells Balak how he can trip Israel up and destroy them by enticing them into sexual sin with this idolatrous cult of Baal worship. And so they join themselves, that is Israel joins itself, the, the people, to the Baal of Peor, right? Now Baal is just a, a word that means Lord, but it referred to a Canaanite fertility god. And that fertility god had a consort named Ashtorah. So they're always together because it's a fertility god. It's about sexual involvement, and the way they worshiped was sensually, okay? So um, Balaam did what God said, but then gave Balak the way to trip Israel up. And later, God used Israel to kill this prophet, right? Um, so uh, he likens, that is, uh, Peter likens, these false teachers to this Balaam. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, there it is again, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Um, so arrogant words is this Greek word, Huperongikos, all right? It means per pertaining to excessive boasting, boastful. Um, in Jude 16, it says, their mouths speak boastful words. Lawanita uh, lexicon. In some languages, the equivalent of boastful words is words too big for what one is talking about, or puffed up words, or swollen words. So these people are essentially puffing themselves up, making themselves seem more important than they are. Um, they're self-promoters. They like titles of honor like bishop, and apostle, and prophet. There are denominations, there are religious groups that are like this. I don't know how you do that. A self-appointed apostle. I'm an apostle. Who said? Well, I did. Okay, I'm confused here because I don't think that's how it works, right? Now, bishop, we don't use that term, but bishop, pastor, elder, it's the same office. Bishop just means overseer. But we don't use that word because it, in denominations that have a hierarchical form of leadership, that's a more elevated title. A bishop is usually somebody who is over pastors or priests and, and so forth, right? So, but you, you, you see these honorific titles that are used. In fact, Jesus very explicitly said, don't use those titles, okay? Now, I don't see pastor being an inherently uh, exalted title. I encourage people to call me pastor so they understand who I am and what I am, okay? But I'm not walking around, you know, puffed up and saying, I'm the pastor. In fact, these days, that's not necessarily uh, you know, the most honored profession, sadly. Um, but nonetheless, uh, they're constantly concerned about their brand. Now you see this today. 
You, you, have you heard that? You know, they're, they're, they're promoting their brand. That's what you do. In social media, you promote your brand, right? It's the way you look, your, you know, the way you come across, types of videos you, you, know, you put up there and so forth. Um, and uh, this is supposed to get people to, you know, to watch you, pay attention to you and so forth. This is what these folks are doing. That's, that's what it's saying, okay? Um, it says that promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by what a man has overcome, this he is enslaved. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. That's John 8, 34 and 35. So this passage ends by reaffirming Jesus' teaching. By what a man has overcome, by this he is enslaved. It's ironic then that these teachers promise freedom to their students since they are slaves of sin and death. That's pure irony. So at the moment that you and I are tempted to sin, it may seem exciting, intoxicating, even life-giving. However, sin always results in death. It never fulfills. It never satisfies. Uh, as the result, these false teachers are likened to springs that look as if they have within them life-giving water, but they're actually dry. False teachers are also seen as mists possessing enough water to tempt the thirsty, but there's nothing there to drink. You can't drink a mist, right? And finally, I'm going to go ahead and conclude the passage. I'm normally done by eight, but if you'll just give me a couple of minutes, I'll be done with chapter two. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled to them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed down to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mud. It's sad to see people who seem to repent for a period of time and turn away from these terrible lifestyles that they've pursued, who then spontaneously turn back, all right? which shows that the repentance was strictly carnal in nature, right? Very animal. Have any of you ever had a, a dog and trained him not to go to the bathroom in the house? Right? Okay. It's, it's behavioral in nature, right? You teach the dog to go to the bathroom in the backyard, not to go to the bathroom in the house. But then, strangely, a few months later, maybe a year later, the dog suddenly goes to the bathroom in the house. And you're like, I don't understand this. In behavioral uh, psychology, that's called spontaneous recovery. And it's what I've told you earlier in this talk. Habits don't ever really go away. You simply overwrite them. But there can be something that causes a trigger, causes the dog to go back. I was taking care of a friend's dog um, because he'd had it for years and then he got married and his wife was allergic to the dog. So I started taking care of the dog. The dog had always been a good dog. He had been trained not to go to the bathroom in the house long, long time before. You could leave him in the house, he wouldn't go to the bathroom, then you take him outside. All of a sudden, this dog is going to the bathroom all over my house. <laughs> what is going on here? The dog just wanted his old master back is what he wanted. You know, this just caused some sort of you know, short-circuiting in his behavior. Uh, 
right? And it didn't matter what I did. I could not get this dog to change, right? You ever heard the, the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks? Okay. But see, if you have genuinely changed spiritually, there's something more going on than just a change in your external behavior. All we see is the external. We can't be the judges. We don't know what's going on on the inside. We just treat people with love and concern and kindness and equity, right? But you don't know what's going on in some, inside somebody's heart and inside somebody's head. You just don't. We've got to pray for folks. And then we've got to continue each of us to submit ourselves to the Lord and surround ourselves with the Lord's people so that we can do what he leads us to do.